Every one of us, I suspect, at one point or another has taken a test, and we know something about the kind of tribulation that can be involved in said exercise. After his baptism and the voice from heaven declaring Jesus as the beloved, we are told the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days, tempted or tested by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts, and the angels waited on him. This testing, this temptation, however, has some implication of being a great feat, uh, a, a noble quest almost, a time of trial. Think of Abraham serving seven years before he could marry, or Odysseus setting out on his great journey. Or think of Brother Job undergoing his trial at the hand of Satan, who makes his first appearance in Scripture in that story and is a kind of prosecuting attorney uh, in the courts of heaven, putting Job on trial. There is something noble and there's something really difficult, life-threatening about such tests where we come up against our limits and we come up against our mortality. And as for us, also for Jesus, the question of whether those limits are going to define us and therefore define what is possible for God, or whether there is something beyond what is deathly. Lent was one of the early seasons observed in the life of the church, and it was modeled quite consciously on that 40 days that Jesus spent in the wilderness. And certainly it's a time to celebrate to prepare to celebrate Easter resurrection, but our immediate horizon weeks away, if you think about it, is Good Friday. Our immediate horizon is death. It's a strange choice, a requiem or parts of a requiem for, for the first Sunday in Lent, but in a sense, it's also pointing us toward uh, death and, and death as our horizon. The litany, originally a prayer in procession, almost a uh, used by pilgrims, uh, reminds us that we are, we are on a journey. We are travelers toward something. And what is that something? What is the horizon? What is the limit of our life? Now, our horizons differ depending on where we are. If we're told we have three days to live, that's a very different horizon than if we think we're going to live for another 50 years. But at either, in either way, the horizon calls into question what really matters, what is important, what is important. And whenever we ask that question in response to horizon, we're confronting something deathly in us, something broken in our relationship with God, something uh, broken in our relationship with others, something by which we collude with that which is less are being less than we created to be, anything that compromises our striving for wholeness or integrity. That's what deathless, deathliness is in our lives. We call it sin. I shared on Wednesday that our ascetic disciplines during the Lenten season are disciplines that help us confront what is deathly in our lives. Our secrets, things we haven't yet discovered about ourselves, they help us confront our own sin. The word from which we get ascetic discipline is ascesis in Greek, and I'm told that the original use of that word was for something akin to sparring in the gymnasium. Another way of putting it is shadow boxing. 
and that is the translation that I found helpful. In Lent, we are taking on the shadows of our lives. We are peering into the shadows and allowing what, is, what we find there, either stuff we already know about, matters that are secret and of great shame and brokenness in our lives, or things we have yet to discover. We're looking into those shadows and bringing those things into the light and offering a fasting will awaken in us an awareness of our appetites and how, how much we might organize our lives around those appetites. An offering of prayer will raise all kinds of questions about how we really spend our time and what is really important to us and whether it should be or not. An offering of almsgiving will raise again our relationship with money and whether it is a tool for life or whether it is somehow a governor in life. All of these things, any one of them, are ways in to taking on that which is deathly and forcing us, in a sense, or allowing us, perhaps, to get to terms again with what is most important in our lives. In any event, our wilderness disciplines become a test of character because they will determine how we are going to confront our sin, how we are going to be with those wild beasts of the shadowlands and confront them often before becoming aware of the ministrations of the angels that surround us on every side. When we confront sin, we get in touch with what we really desire for our relationships, for our money, for our time. We get in touch with who and what really matters to us. There are clues for us in how others confront death. And I hope some of you saw Oliver Sacks' beautiful piece that was published this week. You can web search Oliver Sacks. He wrote uh, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat and other things. He's a doctor. And he's written about what his life is like in the face of death. He is facing a time of trial as a cancer that was treated and removed nine years ago has metastasized to his liver. And he recognizes that it is now up to him to choose how to live out the months that remain to him. He contrasts himself with the Scottish philosopher David Hume, who wrote a reflection in his own, facing his own death. And he contrasts himself with Hume, calls himself a man of vehement disposition, with violent enthusiasm and extreme immoderation in all my passions. Yet one line from Hume's reflection struck him especially true. It is difficult, penned Hume, to be more detached from life than I am at present. And Sachs found that echoed for him. He describes seeing his life as from a great altitude and seeing all the pieces and places and people and work and insights and reflections all somehow connected. He tells of feeling intensely alive, hoping to deepen his friendships, to say farewell to those he loves, to write more, to travel if he has the strength, to achieve new levels of understanding and insight. Now, I won't know with any certainty what will be on my list when I get that diagnosis, and nor do you. But I suspect that we might be able to take some kind of a guess. Sachs knows that the consequence of his mortality in the immediate term will be an intense focus on himself and his work and his friends. He says, I shall no longer look at news hour every night. I shall no longer pay any attention to politics or arguments about global warming, about growing inequality. This is not indifference, he says, but detachment. 
says that he still cares deeply about such things, but they are no longer his business. They may be our business, maybe your business, maybe what you were given to care about, be passionate about at this stage in your life, wherever your horizon is. He says that he's not without fear, but his predominant feeling facing death is one of gratitude for his life. Now, how does this work? Let's take one fairly common sin. Most, if not all of us, have developed some way or ways of deadening ourselves to the world. When we're overstimulated, when there's too much going on, we find ways to shut down. And we tend to shut down uh, people around us, relationships, maybe even our own intuitions. We just shut down even self-examination. It doesn't really matter what the mechanism is. could be alcohol or trash novels or zoning out in front of the television or sexual indulgence or compulsive shopping or binge eating or video games, that's a big one, or jigsaw puzzles, Sudoku. It really doesn't matter when something that is neither good nor ill in and of itself moves beyond being something that a pastime that allows us to relax and into something almost compulsive by which we hold the world, including other people, and in a sense even including ourselves, certainly including God, holding those people and things at bay. And Once we allow ourselves to become aware of what we're doing, awake to our own behavior, then we are confronting the deathly on our horizon and have to begin what is often a long, hard process of moving through asking again what really matters, how we allowed ourselves to get into this state, what we need to do, including often confessing whatever we might discover to be sinful, because the action in and of itself you can confess, but that doesn't really take you anywhere. It's more in the process of looking at where life is broken in relation to God and others and self, confessing what we might find to be sinful in order to move forward, refocusing what really matters to us, turning our lives around, setting aside the weights and sins which get in the way. Now, Dr. Sachs made what is a long, often, and complex process seem quite simple because the results of this work are fairly straightforward. They are being clear, again, about what we're about and why we're about it and what matters. But in reality, this business, which we call self-examination, and repentance can take quite a lot of time and untangling, a season, a journey. Ask anyone in 12-step groups how much time it takes to do this work. And while we do it, we often are with the beasts, and it's only the beasts we can see. And it's only the feelings that we hate, shame, guilt, degradation, discomfort, uncertainty, lack of clarity, whatever it is, the, the, the wild beasts form they take, we might not even be aware that all along the angels are ministering to us. But as we move through the accumulated detritus of our lives, so we will begin to see and hear those angels around us, often in other people. We'll appropriate the forgiveness that is already ours and discover newness of life, a whole new lease on life. And all of it, along with all of it, will enjoy a foretaste of our ultimate destination, 
a foretaste of resurrection Easter, and we will deepen our own trust in God for life as we know ourselves forgiven and loved and freed. This is at least some of the work of this season. And for those of us who undertake it and do it well, we will have prepared for ourselves real and deep and abiding life and joy at Easter. And so in our customary time of silence, I invite you to begin this work. Peer into the shadows, and however afraid you might be, begin to bring what you find or what you know is there into the light. Spiritual work is before us. Let us respond to the gospel in silence and in prayer.